welcome to A Life in Writing with Chris Wooding. I'm Megan Lee, I'm editor of Popverse and co-host of Breaking the Glass Slipper. And today I'm talking to Chris about life spent writing. So from technical aspects of writing to what he loves most about genre fiction. So before we get stuck into all those questions, let's get acquainted with Chris. Hi, I'm uh, Chris Wooding. I have been a professional writer since I was 19. Oh, here comes oh. the feedback. Wait a sec. A bit further away. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some kind of special filling that somehow <laughs> resonates with these uh, microphones. Um, yeah, I've been a professional writer since I was 19, so it's uh, 21 years I've been doing it. In that time, I've written about 24, 25 books. I can't remember exactly. Um, including graphic novels, books for teenagers, uh, adult science fiction and fantasy, and also books for reluctant readers. Uh, I've also spent a lot of time uh, working in the, in the film and movie industry, kind of um, forged myself a side career as a screenwriter who's never actually got anything on the screen yet. Um, <laughs> it's a crazy world, we can talk about that one later. Um, and yeah, and so, in the meantime, I basically spent my entire life since I was 19 avoiding getting a real job. That's, that's a good reason to write, if any, I think so. Um, so, can you talk us through a little bit about how you first got published? Because that's um, quite, quite a tricky thing to do, and you did it at 19, which is crazy impressive and makes me very, very jealous. Well, yeah, that's, that's returning to the whole uh, not wanting to get a real job thing. So, <laughs> so when I was... Um, like, I, I grew up in the Midlands, in the middle of nowhere, and it was like... Uh, during the week, there was no. Um, I didn't have any friends nearby to go and see. All my friends lived in different villages, and it was school nights, so I couldn't go and see. So I spent a lot of time at home just writing stories. Ever since I was sort of 16, I think when I was 16, I wrote my first like, and I were going to quote unquote novel um, on an electric typewriter my dad got for me, uh, and I've it's it's disappeared somewhere. I don't even have any copies of it anywhere. Um, but I had what I did with that one was, I guess one of the things that subsequently served me quite well in that by the time I finished it and I sort of enthusiastically thought wow I'm going to send this off to agents and such um, basically the moment by the time I sent it away you know I sort of expected the agent to get back to me the next day or something um, obviously agents often take months to get back with, with uh, things so by the time after about two weeks I was like oh this is rubbish you know no one's getting back to me I better get on with my next book so by the time any of them inevitably did come out with rejections, I was already halfway through the next one. I was like, I don't care about this rejection because my next book is so much better. Um, so in doing that, I ended up kind of like chaining book after book. And I went to university. And then when I was there, sort of about the end of my, um, after about three months in university, I suddenly got hit by this absolute black depression. I was really kind of like, a, I was having a great time at uni and then all of a sudden I was just like, you know, could barely get out of bed. And the horror was this realization that I had got to get a job at the end of university and the job that I was doing was going to be this kind of, like I was doing English literature and I was kind of like, essentially realized that this is gonna set me up with nothing and I have no idea what to do. And I lived in a kind of like, in a fairly sheltered little bubble in the Midlands all this time without much experience of the world outside of Leicester. And I was really kind of thinking like, hell, you know what I'm gonna do? So. Um, I really got on with writing that, but just basically kind of my, my studies just went by, this, by the wayside and I just started um, writing as hard as I could and all the time. Um, and I did a book, I can't remember what it was now, again it's one of those ones that's lost to history, but I sent it out to a lot of agents um, and 
I was, when I was doing the cover letter, I kind of made a point not to mention my age. I was 18 at the time, and I was kind of going like, well, I don't need any special treatment. You know, it's like, like 18, this shouldn't matter, right? My age shouldn't matter. So after the fifth rejection, I decided I was going to put my age on it. And then the next one, the agent picked me up. And they told me many years later that they were like, well, this book, yeah, it was a kind of like horror novel. And at the time, the bottom had dropped out of the horror market. And there was really, you couldn't sell a horror book anyway. And you couldn't sell this one because it was a load of crap. Um, but like, <laughs> uh, but she had sort of said very much that she was like, well, you know, I've got this book. I knew I couldn't sell it, but you were 18, you could write. I wanted to see what you could do. So she then persuaded me to write, she said, you're 18, just write a book about being 18. And I was like, I, I have no idea how to write books about things that don't involve, you know, monsters and stuff. Um, but I had a crack at it, kind of, uh, and this was this book called Crashing that um, was, and essentially my agent took that, took it to a publisher and then it pretty much immediately got picked up. So I was like, oh hell, you know, she knows what she's doing. Um, and started that way. Uh, so I initially started out writing YA books and my first sort of like two or three books were along these lines. They were kind of like, you know, kids drama about being 18 and, uh, you know, and what it was like to be a sort of 18 year old boy. Um, and then after that, I'd got enough of a foothold to start doing what I actually wanted to do, which was kind of fantasy ones. And so I started doing YA fantasy. I did a, did a kind of epic YA fantasy. Um, or, as, you know, as epic as those kind of things get. It was like a proper uh, trilogy of books called Broken Sky. Um, and then after that, I started writing books that were longer and longer, and then eventually it got to a point where I, I, I was writing virtually adult books for, for the YA market, and so I decided that I was going to try and uh, uh, get adult books published as well. And so, hence, eventually I got on to Galance. And then uh, that was I must have been 26 at that point, I think, by the time I was doing that. So still, still very young, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that was, but I mean, like, like youth was to my advantage because I, you have, I have a massive respect for authors who managed to get published and put out books now if they started at the age of, you know, uh, 35, 40 or something because you have responsibilities and rent and you might have a family and all this kind of thing. Um, when I was first published, it's like, you know, I was making, making a pittance as many first, you know, starting out authors mm. do, but, but that pittance to me was amazing because all my friends were unemployed and I was living like a student. So, I mean, as far as I was, I was living like a king because I could afford to go to the pub. So, <laughs> it was, um, so, so, you know, uh, low expectations are a good, a good you know, starting mark in, in, in this profession. And, uh, and so I had a lot of time to essentially build up, to build up a backlist of books to a level where I could actually make a living off them and... Uh, by that point yeah and then I moved to London and then it all went back again <laughs> well yeah anyone earning a decent salary in London is just, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I mean how have you managed to sort of keep writing because I mean the thing is uh, I know of a lot of authors who maybe you know didn't their first book didn't sell particularly well so then trying to get people to keep you know investing in them and so on and you've I mean you've had 24 books how do you mm keep going and, and what lessons have you learned as, as you've published more and more books? <laughs> um, versatility and perseverance are the key. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, reckon, I think if I was only writing one type of book, it, it would be much more troublesome to make a career out of it because, um, because you are really, you know, you're in danger of if one of your books flops or if several flop in a row, then all of a sudden you are in a position where booksellers will... Um, be less enthusiastic about picking up your books they will stock less of your books in the bookstore and all of a sudden you find yourself on this kind of declining slope that's very hard to pull out of without reinventing yourself as a new author without deciding to you know, um, start again with a pseudonym or something 
Um, so, you know, I was doing I was doing young adult books, and then I was doing adult books, and then I'm, I also do screen work, and then I do lots of other little bits around on the side. Um, and essentially, it's kind of a I can just switch from one to the other if one's mm. not going if, you know, if one's not going too well, then you can always kind of I can switch over and do something else instead, which is what um, keeps me up and also keeps me interested as well. It's like after I've written, um, I just finished writing uh, The Ember Blade, which took me about two years and is the longest time I've ever spent on a book, and it's pretty massive. Um, and then after that, I had to just do some screen work instead because it's just the change from that to go to doing from writing all that dense prose to, to doing screenwriting, which is much more um, stripped down and much more kind of, you know. Uh, Dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. It's dialogue, 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 dialogue <laughs> and just pure dramatic decisions instead. Of, and you don't have to describe anything, which is amazing, because I, by that time I was sick of describing stuff. Um, and that is kind of, yeah, you know, you get fatigue after, if you have to, you know, 24 books write a fantasy, it's really hard to describe a forest, you know, the, the, in a way you haven't done before, or something like that. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, you know, first world problems. <laughs> Do you keep some sort of writing schedule or something? Because, I mean, 24 novels is... That's a lot. I mean, how do you like keep it up? Do you well, if I was going at the speed I started out, I'd be about on 137 by now. <laughs> it's like I used to be able to do like three books a year or something. Um, but I kind of slowed down a lot more. Essentially, to take more care about it. Uh, um, I write schedule. I write. I write pretty much, you know, nine to five ish schedule. Uh, Monday to Friday. I used to write seven days a week, um, and then eventually uh, one of my one of my ex girlfriends basically demanded that I spend some time with her on the weekend, and so I had to give up doing weekend stuff. Uh, which then I realised I was like, oh, weekends are nice, so, so I would <laughs> have that. Um, but but that obviously. So, but I used to be in the kind of thing where I'd just get up in the morning, and if I didn't have anything else already set and planned, then rather than try and find something to do on a Saturday or Sunday, I'd just be like, well, I might as well write. And I'd start doing that. So, um, so yeah. I mean, I put in a lot of I put in a lot of hours, uh, but it's also I don't know. I'm kind of keyed to it. Um, I have this kind of thing where if I get if it's three o'clock in the afternoon, I can't relax doing something that would you know I can't just like watch a movie or play a video game or read a book or anything like that because I feel like this is supposed to be work time in my head and I'm just kind of <laughs> obsessively like I can't settle to it. So I sort of might as well work. That is an enviable problem. Uh, yeah, it's not too bad. <laughs> I, am, uh, yes, no, I think I, I always felt lucky that I always had a kind of focus. I always knew what I wanted to do mm. ever since I was very, very young. And I think that helps a great deal because I, I know, you know a lot of people I know in my life are you know, my age. Now I'm 40. Um, and they still don't know what they want to do with their lives kind of thing. I mean, it's a big question for a lot of people. And I think I was lucky that I, that I sort of was like, OK, I want to be a writer or a rock star. Or both, both if I can, but I don't think anyone's really pulled them off together. So, um, I mean, we've we've talked about how you know you write books for adults and YA. You write like fantasy and sort of realism, um, all all kinds of across the spectrum. Do you have to approach them differently? Do you have to do brainstorming differently? Do you do the structure differently? Like, how do you approach writing in these different genres and and target markets? Um, yeah, they are all different. Um, there's, I kind of look at it at the start of a book. Um, it's almost like I've got a kind of bank of sliders in front of me, where you know, which I need to, I need to set how the, the tone of the book. And often they're in opposition to each other. So you have something like you know, uh, descript, description versus pace, immersion versus pace. Let's say, for example, is kind of one where you'd be kind of going the more 
the more time you spend describing something, the more you're going to sacrifice the pace of the book. And so you have to decide, is this going to be a kind of stripped down, quick kind of book, or is it going to be a much more, you know, immersive one with a lot more kind of like side history and stuff. And they, these are two different kinds of books that different markets like. Um, YA, I've always... Why I always had a kind of thing where essentially the important thing is you've got to write it from is the age of the protagonist and the the um, things the protagonist is worried about kind of thing. Like, like what what a if you've got a fourteen year old protagonist, what they're thinking about is going to be obviously vastly different to what a thirty five year old is going to be thinking about because they've they've got different concerns. Um, but beyond that, you don't have to be you know you don't have to restrict the language too much. You don't have to. So, but you know I mean different markets have different demands um, my way publishers would obviously prefer you know prefer things pacier and less kind of like um, uh, and less sprawling as um, and the 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 Ember Blade, the new one I'm doing, which is kind of like my first, I, which actually, even though I've done a lot of fantasy books, I've never actually done a straight out I mean what we'd, we'd call straight out fantasy a kind of like you know a pseudo medieval fantasy I'd never written that before, despite the fact that those were the books I grew up on and loved and all that kind of thing. And so this time I was like, damn it, I'm going to do this one. Instead of like throwing everything out of the window at the start and then coming up with something, uh, you know, throwing all the tropes out of the window at the start and then coming up, so I'm going to do something which has a, like a kind of base level that everybody recognises and then use that as a way to try and tell it. Um, it makes it much easier to tell a story when you're not distracted by the background. And then I, uh, another earlier book I wrote called The Fade, uh, which is one of my favourite books, but it was incredibly hard to do. Um, and this is set in this really, where it's like set in this world where it's on a moon where um, the civilization has had long ago migrated underground because the suns were, were had sort of like flensed all life off the surface. And they'd created this whole civilization. Everything was based underground. And it was this kind of like sort of semi-medieval kind of renaissance slide of sort of science fiction-y kind of thing. And the amount of description you had to do when everything was when everything was so unusual you know when literally you had a kind of thing where it's like I'd be you'd be writing people eating and you'd be kind of go what the hell do they eat with why would they they don't necessarily eat with spoons but if I call everything that's not a spoon a squaggle then this is going to completely like make you know this is going to make all these uh, paragraphs look absolutely ridiculous so <laughs> so you were constantly making these decisions of like um, how much you had to uh, detail the background for the reader and the more you do that, the more it becomes distracting from the plot, um, because eventually all you're doing is, is spending time talking about the background, and then the and uh, you know the poor reader actually forgets what the story's about eventually because you've spent so much time describing spoons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, so you obviously very talented, um, and you found success in all these very different areas. So. Uh, you know, the insecurity in me wants me to tell you what you failed at. What do you find really hard to do? What can you just not get your head around? Um, or, or are you just, you know, you can do anything? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there's tons I can't do. Um, uh, well, there's a lot of genres I haven't tried at, which I know I would probably suck at if I started doing. Um, there's very much kind of... A, I see it the other way. There was, when uh, YA got really big, there was a big influx of kind of like authors who, uh, you know, say thriller authors or something, who after Harry Potter was like, there's loads of money in YA. Anyone can write a YA book. It's just for kids, right? And, um, and you know, failed dramatically at it kind of thing because uh, you can't be arrogant about writing in a genre. There's, there's, there's genres that people look down on and you think like, hey, I could totally write this. But, you know, realistically, I know, I've, 
uh, it took a lot of practice to be able to learn how to write a script. It, uh, it took a lot of practice to learn how to write YA books. It's just practice. So uh, essentially, I don't know, there's things that I don't have um, a feel for, I imagine. Uh, so I'd never be able to write like something like Ian McEwan, uh, those kind of books, so those sort of like dense, um, really uh, emotionally penetrating books. You know, because I, because the way I pace my drama, I always um, have it, I forefront plot over um, over character introspection kind of thing. I always, I like, like if I'm going to balance them, I always want, I want speed of plot. Well, I always, you know, there is character introspection and change and stuff like that, but I tend to do it while pinned to something dramatic actually happening on the outside. Um, I don't know, it's actually more that the list of things I can't do is probably so vast I can't even <laughs> think of what, what I would pinpoint. I'm crap at tennis. Um, <laughs> I mean, okay, so you always, you've talked about how you've, you always knew you wanted to be a writer, you always wanted to write. Was it always sort of in, in the speculative fiction area? Um, and, and what made you fall in love with speculative fiction, fantasy, sci-fi, horror? Um, yeah, it was always speculative fiction. That's the kind of thing, even despite the... The only thing I don't always write spec fic is when I'm doing uh, screen stuff because that's more... Actually, that's a relief. That's just like you know, human drama. So then because of budgetary constraints and so forth, it's pointless writing a really, really kind of um, crazy out there fantasy kind of thing because people just generally don't have the budget for it, so no one will even read your script. It has to be much more grounded and much more about people, which is nice. So that's where I get my kind of like, you know, relief from doing that. But, um, but Specfig, the great thing about it is that you have no budget and you can do, you can, you know, go as much as your imagination allows. And yeah, as a kid, I always just... I think it probably initially started as escapism. It was that my, my mum just had loads of fantasy books lying around the house. Um, so I was reading, uh, you know, sort of Shannara and obviously Lord of the Rings and all that kind of thing, and Robin Hobb books and, uh, you know, um, all the, the kind of big classics from the, from the 80s and 90s. Um, and they just kind of... They just carried me away in a way that the, 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 the stories about things that were already real didn't um I've always I guess I've had a kind of thing you know because I live in the world and I'm less inclined to read about it I'm very much a blurb reader when I pick up books it's like I'm, I read read the back and despite the fact I've read you know read some really really great books uh, things like uh, The Slap for example was was brilliant I really loved that and it's very much just about um Australian families and you know what happens after a certain incident um fantastic book and I read it and kind of put it down. I still have no inclination to kind of carry on, to pick up another book of that similar kind of thing. The, the premise didn't interest me. The book itself was brilliant. And so I almost always pick a specific one over, over a book about um, essentially, you know, quote-unquote normal things. Because I want that. I want that world. I want that escape. I want somebody to kind of... I, you know, I, and a lot of it is trying to recapture the feeling that I got because they were the first books that I read and loved. And I wonder if this is a lot of readers do this. I think um, they want to recapture the feeling of what they did when they first picked up a book and were absolutely blown away by it. Yeah. Um, do you have like any memory of like what a specific book that really kind of ignited that? Oh uh, yeah, well, I, mean, um, I do remember the Elfstones of Shannara was the one. Ironically, not the Sword of Shannara, which is the first one, but the um, the Elfstones was the one that really, really knocked me off my feet when I was I don't know how old it was. Um, 
Lord of the Rings before that. Like Lord of the Rings is it, Lord of the Rings is the only book that I've ever read over and over and over again. It's like I'm not really a book rereader once I've read it once. It's kind of done. I think I can only only a few books I've ever read more than once, but but then only twice. Whereas Lord of the Rings I must have read about eleven or twelve times now, kind of thing. It's still like I don't know. Still is the best fantasy book ever. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah. So so there's ones. And then I'm trying to think. Um, also. YA ones like the tripods, tripods. I have the John Christopher tripods trilogy was fantastic. And years and years and years later, I read that when I was um, I was on a plane to California, and so it was like a fourteen-hour flight or something. And and I I bought the, tri- the tripods trilogy, and it had by that point it had a kind of prequel, which was which was actually a bit rubbish. The, the trilogy was amazing, and the prequel was probably shouldn't have existed. Um, <laughs> and I just kind of read them start to finish cover to cover and it took me almost exactly 14 hours the plane was just touching down as I finished the last one with my eyes on fire and you know smoke coming out my ears um, and, and they had really, they really stood up you know even sort of like uh, well 20 odd years later or something they were still absolutely fantastic I mean um, some writers uh, when they're trying to write in a different genre that they've not written in before or you know they read a lot in that genre um, do you do that or does that kind of hamper your own Creativity and, and, and do you fall into like other people's styles and stuff? I know it doesn't influence my style. I, I read, I do, uh, I do read a lot in the genre, although less so these days. But that's only just because I have less time to read these days. Um, so a lot of the touchstones, you know, like it used to be that I'd read just virtually everything in fantasy up until a certain age, and then less and less. So it kind of tailed off. Um, uh, later and later, but no, I don't. I don't kind of hold with the idea that you shouldn't read someone else's work. Often it kind of makes, um, it makes sense because uh, if you're coming up with new ideas for stories, the amount of times um, I've come up with an idea and kind of gone like, ah, and then I've heard about a, a, someone else who's written something that sounds suspiciously similar, and you kind of, get, you know, you can completely, you can waste years writing something. Because <laughs> like, yeah, that's like that other book, and you just like, oh, just, just. <laughs> Um, so it, I mean, it pays to be aware of it, but also it's nice to. I mean, uh, it's one of the reasons why I come to conventions like this as well. It's to to be able to keep like meet the new authors in the genre and also keep an eye on what's kind of going on in it and stuff. So I know which rivals to assassinate when the time comes. Yes, that that is very important. Yeah, you've got your, uh, your poison ring handy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, so you've talked also a little bit about um, genre fiction tropes and sort of when coming to the Ember Blade, you know, you wanted to, to work off something that the audience is sort of knew at least enough of. And I mean, that is part of the appeal of genre fiction. We come at it because, you know, I, I love Star Wars, so I'll probably try this space opera novel because that's, you know, what I really like. Um, and we, we do come to these tropes. But how do you balance that with sort of not just churning out exactly the same as what you know has been churned out from the beginning of the genre and and how do you um make these really tried and tested and loved genres something new and unique that that's really yours yeah well, it's kind of um i mean tropes uh, tropes exist because often they represent things that um i mean there's a lot of good ones but they represent things that people like uh, and the reason they're tropes is because they're so uh, they're so effective it's the same kind of reason as why with you know why you can tell fairy tales over and over again for hundreds of years because there's just something kind of primal in them and so it's a matter of identifying which ones are just lazy genre tropes and which ones are um are you know there for a reason and which are good so 
I mean, for example, one of the things I was thinking about when I was doing the Emberblade is there's a very much a kind of sense in it that I wanted to kind of draw out what I liked about fantasy when I was a kid. Um, that I don't feel that like a lot of that it's happening a lot now in the market. Um, with uh, the way that fantasy has kind of shifted towards grimdark in general in the market, the, the way the markets come out, it's like I mean, don't get me wrong, like grimdark's great, and I love it, but for me, it doesn't have the, it doesn't do what it did. Well, I, you know, it doesn't give me the feeling that I felt like when I was a kid. It's not as escapist and yes, uh, and, and hopeful. And so yeah, and so I was kind of um, thinking about that. So one, you know, trope, for example, you'd say that goes along in, in fantasy is this idea that like you know, eventually somebody always gets around a, your group gets around a campfire. The grimdark version of that is to get around a campfire and one of them has dysentery and is having terrible toilet problems <laughs> and uh, the other one's teeth fall out and someone's eating kind of poisonous rat and stuff. Whereas it's like the, um, you know, that, but then you've got the Hobbit version where they're sitting having bacon and eggs despite that, like on Weathertop, despite the fact that, you know, there's, there's uh, uh, Nazgul closing in on them. But like, there are these kind of like moments of camaraderie and I kind of thought that like, one of the things that I miss about fantasy now is this sense that, that you have actually sometimes likeable characters that really are, you know, that you get a sense that they're actually really friends with each other. And that you as a reader would actually kind of want to sit down at that campfire with them and, you know, and eat some of that rancid rat. <laughs> but like, um, you know, so, so I've rambled so far off the tangent, I forgot the original. <laughs> <laughs> How do you try and make tropes your own? Right, yeah, yeah. With a... um, yeah, so so I guess doing doing um, stance and those kind of things, some tropes are you know virtually unavoidable. But you take that campfire. There's a million ways to do that campfire scene. There's a million ways to kind of create a, a sense of camaraderie in a group. And um, the Emberblade is using a lot of. I'm trying. Is using a quest narrative essentially, which I feel like hasn't been done for ages. Um, uh, so I wanted to do something that feels like a quest, but doesn't feel like you know the guy picks up a, a the magical sword and then goes and saves the kingdom kind of thing. So, so while there's a quite traditional quest narrative in there, and there's this kind of like and the story is about a friendship between uh, well, between two friends and what happens to them as they go along, it's actually um, the more modern take on it is it's a story of a revolution, and so it's. I'm trying to take the things that I liked about the kind of like '90s '90s fantasy. Uh, and mix it with the more interesting moral kind of stuff that Grimdark does without going too far in either way. I, I, I feel like the market kind of overcorrected after the kind of like the very simplistic um, 90s, uh, 90s sort of like thing where good guys were good and bad guys were bad and there was no mm. real differentiation in between. Um, then shifted over to such a moral level of darkness that it's lost some of the thing that I liked about the genre in the first place. So, um, uh, so this new book is an attempt to somewhat correct the balance in my favour but just my personal thing because to be honest it's like everybody only writes the books that they want to read so um, <laughs> I mean uh, yeah I'm just doing it so it's some so because um, it feels like a book I would like to read when I was 16, 17 I mean you've talked a little bit about um, thinking about the market and the trends I mean how much do you pay attention to that when you're coming up with your ideas or structuring your novels don't really pay attention to trends, but you do have to have an eye on the market because it's like it's like kind of you know, it's, it's necessary to making a living off it. Mm -hmm. um, so there are certain things where, like, if you're coming up with an idea for a new book, for example, a new story, it's like you've got you could have a hundred ideas and you've got them um, you're on your hands. But but so it's a question of not necessarily kind of deciding which ones will sell, but you're kind of going well. Oh yeah, all these ideas are all equally good, but like some of them I will write them and 
no one will buy this book because they'll they'll be you know for various reasons they'll be like you know the protagonist is so foul and they'll be in there it's like it's too weird there's a lot of um, I like weird and, <laughs> yeah but that, but that requires a lot of yeah that requires a lot of tempering um, so you have these ones and you basically kind of go yeah which of these are most viable um, and and you'll come down to a handful of them and then make a decision and then out of them you'd be kind of like well which of these would I do I want to do the most which do I feel you know so. Mm. I, d- I mean, it's quite a. I guess it's quite a complicated process because it often it takes in a lot of factors like you know what have I written before and I'm sick of writing. What have I, like a lot of the the kind of go-to ideas that I would have gone to before I've, I've done. So and I don't want to repeat my own books. So there's always a kind of thing of going mm-hmm. like, well, you know, you want to. Which is possible when you've written twenty-four. Yeah, but on. they're all different. <laughs> yeah, they're all different different um, styles that's why I keep on switching them around I mean god knows there's probably repeating themes in them and all um, but I like to think that I try and I try and keep them different just because I, if I find myself writing the same scene again that's the thing um, as I said before it's having because I can generally remember even the lines that I used to describe things you know 15 years ago or something like that I'd be like if I described a certain thing and I describe it in a certain way that's like my unconscious go-to line that I probably robbed off some other author somewhere when I went back in my childhood, um, and and I'll I'll write that down. I'll be like, I've done that, haven't I? I've done that. I've described I've described this thing as glamorous before, <laughs> so and I need to find another way for it, you know, another word, and then it's say. Like, so the more you end up doing the same things, um, the I wrote a series of books called the Tales of the Ketty J, which was a kind of steampunk airships kind of thing. And by the end of it, I just had just run out of ways to describe aerial battles and make them interesting. There were so many of them, and each time I did it, I had to kind of choreograph, uh, you know, to make it interesting and to to add any dramatic elements into it. You know, it, it requires a lot of sort of working out. Um, to make you be able to read two chapters of an aerial fight kind of thing and so um, and by the time I'd done that over and over and over again I just was getting to a point where the last book I was like every every time it got to a fight scene I was like oh, what on earth can I do now can I introduce flying squirrels or something <laughs> you know <laughs> just like something to get this to, 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 to be new and that was when I that was essentially when I was like right okay four no books more, in this no series more. is enough because, <laughs> because I'm beginning to get you know I'm going to tire out yeah um so then I said I was just never going to write an aerial combat sequence again in my life. <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> never say never. <laughs> yes, never say never. I mean, so you've, like, working with steampunk, you're working with fantasy, I mean, and you've said that, uh, you know, you're quite plot-driven, but what happens with world-building? Do you, like, really heavily plan your world before you start writing, or do you kind of do it on the fly? It depends on the book again. Um, each one is a different different approach. Um, I did quite a lot of world building with the the Ketty J books. I mean, the world building is a bit that I enjoy the most, actually. Um, I really like that, and so so as much time as I can get before I start planning the world makes it much much easier. And, um, and with the Emberblade, I had the luxury of being able to. I was like, right, I can spend a solid month, you know, like nine to five just kind of like planning out this whole thing and working out how the religion works and how the law works and then after that the challenge is how to put it in the book without slowing down the plot yes. but if you know all this kind of thing you know, if you have time to plot this kind of stuff out it's much much easier because I don't have to stop every three paragraphs and kind of go like what? so wait a minute this person is a priest of this religion where, where, where does that religion come into it you know where, like, how does that affect it what I love about it is because uh, I um, I like to read. I'm fascinated by you know history as well, and the, the mm. thing that I like about history, 
is the interconnectivity of it, the fact that it kind of gives you a sense. I remember one of the kind of defining moments of my reading childhood was I read the, the New Penguin History of the World, and for the first time, that kind of put together all these like um, sort of discrete bits of history that I'd learned in Britain. You know, we're taught about the Romans and the Egyptians at school, and we're taught about Henry VIII, and we're taught about all these kind of things, but it's not joined up at all. And then having this whole kind of thing laid out essentially sequentially in front of you and seeing how history affects history and how these you know, kind of movement of people have made this you know, huge sense of wonder and seemed amazing. And so I wanted to kind of represent that in, in my books. And so the, the really fun thing is doing that, is, you know, is having a world of kind of going, okay, so thousands of years ago, these invaded these people and that's where there were these people in that land and these people speak that language because of this, their religion becomes of that, that religion is an adaptation of this one. And putting all those little bits in together is uh, yeah, is loads and loads of fun and then mm. and then and then eventually when you get the plot all you're doing is doing a snapshot of that world you're just kind of doing like you know people are walking walking through it but I always found that, you know, the best way to kind of um, show off that world building is always to have uh, is rather than ever explain it is to have like you know walk your characters past it so you know if you want to if you want to express that hundreds of thousands of years ago there were there was there was another race of peoples who lived in this land who were now extinct then you just while your characters are talking about something to do with the plot you have them walk past a you know a stonehenge-esque thing or something like that and all you have to do is describe that and then leave the rest of it to the reader's imagination and it's um uh and that's yeah like all those little bits that's what world building well world building has the value because it's mm. um it adds so much uh so much to a story if you feel there's something else going on outside the page. That was one of the things that Star Wars did really well in movies, actually. Movies was... Um, movies generally have a kind of thing where when they're, when they're written, you know, all that exists is what's in the movie and, and in the script, where Star Wars was really one of the first blew me away as a kid because you had, you know, hundreds of aliens that came in and had just, like, bit parts and had nothing else to, to do with the story. He was talking about this guy, Jabba the Hutt, where he didn't see until movie three which was again the first time I'd seen in a movie where you'd kind of stitched something you'd foreshadowed something you know, all the way across a, um, three movies you know this idea that like it was there was always a sense that there was going to be more outside of the movie and I found that incredibly effective and again same thing happens with books so they'll often be um, I felt I've caught flack before which I feel about this <laughs> because I'll do like you know I'll have people referring to oh here's you know referring to some I don't know mysterious land or whatever or some something that exists outside of the the, uh, the story where people will you know a lot of readers will be for them it sets up a flag and they kind of go aces that's where they're going to explore in book five you know what I mean this this thing and then and they never do it's just like it's just something that they talked about but never went to and some people some people love that they like the idea mm. that it's, it gives you a bit more world outside of your story and other people are very much like well, well wait a minute I feel cheated because you told me about this interesting place and we never went there Oh, so yeah, because uh, as a reader for me, I like speculative fiction worlds because there's always this hint of more and, and there's enough there for me to love the world that, uh, as it's created, but enough to also get into my own imagination and, and build on that. And that's, that's yeah. something I really love about it. Yeah, and, 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 and hinting is by far the most effective way of doing it. You know, no, one can, no one can imagine what's scary or what's amazing more than the actual reader themselves individually. You can, I mean, you can't tell them, but your interpretation is almost inevitably going to kind of disappoint. So that's why it's like horror is always better when you when you don't really pull back the curtain, that kind of thing. Yeah, so or like in just 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 in 
intimate that something is behind the curtain and then let the readers have their own personal paranoias and fears yeah. and project that onto your It's book. also like um, in Star Wars again, but Empire Strikes Back when uh, you know the, the Wampa comes in and you've got, in the original cut, I find it so much more effective and terrifying when you just see the arm and like the yeah, bits. But yeah. then, in, you know, in the special edition, we got the whole creature, and it kind of ruined it for me because I like the the kind of hint at the horrific rather than the you know, oh, everything's just there. All right, fine, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's no, just no, another creature. I, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, um, because none of us a sense of love because you just saw a claw in the movie, and then and then later on there was there was this there was some legendary toy out there somewhere, where, you know, like the, the Hothwamper toy that you'd sort of see in catalogues sold in distant lands. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, pre-internet days, yeah, twenty-eight days for delivery. Um, but like, yeah, that kind of thing where you were like, oh my god, I saw the claw of that thing in the movie, and there's, a, there's, and now you get to see it out in the real world. You know, there's yeah. this, there's this weird, weirdly meta thing about that. I mean, so you've, you know, we've covered that you've written an, a lot of different worlds and a different styles. Is there anything that you'd love to just have a crack at that you've not tried yet? Yeah. Um, I just keep on meaning to do like a, a straight-out thriller fiction book. I keep on meaning to do because um, because I feel like something that's within my capabilities. Um, what it's about though is it's always about uh, time because the, whenever you move and try and do something new in a new market, or something like that, you essentially have to have the time to prove that you can do it and to practice it somewhat. So um, so it's the kind of thing of kind of going, yeah, when am I going to get like a clear nine months to to write a really good thriller book that I could then you know take out and do something with um, one day one day I'll get the time but it's, but, but one of the uh, downsides of having all these kind of um, different streams like where you know kind of, I, I have uh, Scholastic published in my YA books I have Ganans published in my adult books and then there's, then there's, there's screen work coming all over and what that means is, is I'm I'm constantly. I'm never able to keep up with with one person's schedule enough. Like like each of those publishers would love me to give them one book a year is the ideal kind of thing. But it's just. But I mean, I could do if I was only doing one. But um, realistically, it's it's hard to keep up with the workload that I've got, let alone spending time doing new stuff. So one day. I don't think you should complain about having uh, no, too many book contracts. <laughs> really, really not complaining. <laughs> All right, and before we uh, open it up to audience questions, um, I just wanted to, to have you sort of pitch to us The Ember Blade, because this is your new book coming out, and it's the brand new series. Um, you know, So tell us what it's about and why we should be excited for it. Well, I think I've been surreptitiously pitching it throughout most of this, <laughs> uh, this talk, actually. I don't know if anybody noticed the, the, the sly sides. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, like, so, so, so this is going to scratch the itch of everybody who ever read a fantasy book when they were 16. So let's just keep it broad like that. Um, yeah, I'm trying to do like, this is kind of like a big epic fantasy um, lens through a modern day kind of thing. It's my, my, my pitch is Game of Thrones meets Braveheart. It's a story of a, it's a, story of a, of a revolution set in the kind of fantasy world. And um, our protagonist is... is a young man in a, uh, a land that has been under the occupation of his neighbours for the previous 30 years. So he's only ever grown up thinking that... Uh, he's grown up in this world where, um, where his neighbours are seen as a superior culture. It's kind of analogous to the way when the Romans came to, came to Britain. When the Romans came to Britain, rather than massacring everybody, they sort of took, they talked to the nobles and they said, we can either kill you or um, we can take your sons and show them Rome and show them how awesome it is and how small you are and then uh, you know and then you'll realize we're a superior culture and we'll all get along 
that's essentially what's happened in that world and our hero is the son of a noble it's a it's a straight up coming of age tale as well another one that i haven't done before um it's a son of a noble uh who let's say a tragedy happens to him and he comes to realize that um being a sort of second-class citizen in, in his own land is not the ideal. And so the story of the trilogy is going to follow him, uh, the, the fortunes of him and his friend as, um, as essentially a revolution begins and is played out. Fab. And when is that coming out? That is more than likely coming out in February. <laughs> if you get, stick to your deadlines, is that it? <laughs> if, if we all stick to our deadlines, mm-hmm. um, yes, yeah, no, no, yeah. um, it's it's no, it's finished. Um, it's it, not entirely. I mean, the the first draft is done, but there's there's a yep, certain amount of editing that still needs yep. to be done back and forth. Um, so it's a matter of whether it can be done quickly enough. And uh, and my wife's about to is going to give birth in about three weeks, so. That would probably set me back a little bit because <laughs> uh, it's quite hard writing. Have you soundproofed your office yet? Oh, no, 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 no. I just do the sleep deprivation thing instead, so I'm, I'm done there all the way with it. <laughs> so, yeah, no, so I just get used to existing on about three hours sleep. Um, but it's fine. I, I did that last time and it strangely didn't impact my work. <laughs> so, I'd well, like to think it did. Your editors might have Yeah, it kind of comes back and it's like, you know, um, what is this hallucinogenic ramble you've just been doing? <laughs> what is it about a unicorn climbing in through the window? <laughs> awesome. All right. So, uh, we're opening up to questions. Uh, if you just want to put up your hand if you have a question and I can pick you out or no one, we're not scary. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when I'm pitching Retribution Forge to my friends, I often describe it as um, Firefly meets FMA or From the Darkness. Yeah. Um, was uh, Firefly an influence uh, when you were writing it? Um, hang on. So just for the purposes of the recording, um, we've just been asked if Firefly was um, an influence uh, to Chris. It weirdly wasn't consciously so, even though um, yeah, even though looking back on it, you could say that it was. I. I think what, what I wanted with that one was um, I had seen Firefly and I'd really loved it. Um, That's did, the correct answer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, and I hadn't seen full, full, metal, full metal Alchemist at that time, but I have since read it. And I know when you're talking about Bess, aren't you, and those kind of things, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and it does have some crossover. Um, what I wanted to do with that book was that I wanted to. Um, uh, the previous kind of um, big big fancy trilogy I'd done was um, The Braided Path and in that one as happened with a lot of fancy trilogies you start off with a bunch of characters all together and it's great and then very quickly they all drift off into different lands and all of a sudden you're kind of splitting your narrative and then suddenly it's like you've taken an entire book to do you know to tell five minutes of actual story because they're all in different places and I was kind of going oh, I'm sick of this what I want is a story about a crew you know, a captain and a crew and so they're all forced to stay together but they can travel to different places and so the, the crew are all confined and uh, and yet I can show the world by moving them around and initially it was actually just going to be a kind of fantasy version of people on a, a ship it was like a pirate story but the ship couldn't move fast enough for me to get to all these different lands in time um, so then it became an airship and so then the whole kind of thing came spilled out of that and when you have a crew of people on an airship, it's like they're all going to fulfil certain roles. So you've got to have a mechanic, really, and you've got to have a doctor, and you've got to have the, the captain and so forth. And so a lot of them had kind of crossover with Firefly. 
but um, but yeah, not consciously so. Probably subconsciously, yes. <laughs> uh, and I did, yes, and I did love it. And do um, do bemoan the fact that they've never made a second series, but um, <laughs> it's one of the great tragedies of our age. It is. Anyone else? Yeah. Do you have a uh, specific writing environment? Um, so the question is, do you have a specific writing environment? It's no. It changes again. It changes. They change book by book. I used to. I used to just write in my bedroom uh, when I was younger. Then eventually, I kind of bought a laptop and started writing in cafes all the time. Um, now I kind of just. It, it sort of depends on what I'm doing now. If I'm actually just like I, I write longhand in just in um, uh, notebooks, and then I go home and type it up, and that that for me works works quite well because. I didn't used to do that, but now I've decided it works really well as a kind of as a form of editing because I go out, I sit in a cafe or something, I write, I write out chapters longhand, and when I come and partially because when you write something on a page with pen, it has like no authority, whereas if you write, put, type something into Word, it kind of looks cool on the page, and you're much less likely to delete it. Um, whereas I can scribble stuff out easily in longhand, and then then I'll come home and type it into a computer, and that will, and when I'm doing that. I would be like, yeah, that line's not very good, and so on and so on. And so I'll be kind of editing it and putting it into the computer. That works really well for me, because otherwise I would just write the whole thing out, as I, I used to. I used to write the whole thing into the computer, and then I would edit it all in one chunk at the end. And the problem with that is you're spending like two weeks of kind of furious concentration on your, on your book trying to correct all the problems at once, instead of chopping up into little bite-sized pieces like I do. Um, and it's almost inevitable that you're going to get lazy at that point because you just can't sustain concentration like that so um, yeah so, so then then what would end up happening is I have to do more and more rewrites and so forth so yeah my environment is cafes mostly I'm quite I like the kind of false company of cafes it's that kind of thing where there's, there's always like you know there's always some cruddy music going on in the background that, that, that works the distraction I have certain cafes that I can't go to because there's too much drama going on and I'm like you know ones where ones where there's no if they're not playing enough music or something like that, it's too small. You end up hearing, you know, two people come together and they have a breakup at the cafe or something like that, or there's somebody coming in there and they're talking about their family problems. It's, it's, just, it's amazing what people say in cafes, thinking that people can't hear them. It's like the mobile phone syndrome. Um, so those places, I, I, I inevitably stop. I kind of, I, you know, suddenly my pen lifts off the page and starts pretending to write while I'm listening to these guys morally destroy each other. Um, but yeah, cafes usually, then home occasionally. It kind of depends, really. I'm, I'm quite. I can do it anywhere. Actually, I write best on trains. So I do, I've always had an idea that I should really just sit on a circle line and go around in circles. I would like write about three books a day. But um, yeah, still never quite managed that one. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, I've never tried editing books. Um, I've never um, probably start with retribution. Oh, sorry, do you want to? Yeah. Uh, so just um, so um, we've been asked, where is a good place to start with Chris's work? I'd say, I'd, I say retribution falls to people most of the time. It's the kind of it's the, the steampunk sky pirate one. It's one of the ones I, I, I feel at that point I'd kind of got a handle on doing. It's very kind of fast paced. Uh, it's quite an easy read, but it has a lot of like world building involvement in there, and I think it's. And it's the start of uh, four books, so then you have to buy the rest of them. So, <laughs> more money in my pocket, go for it. <laughs> yes? Yeah. So, at the top of your chapters, you, when, when you have a, a little uh, 
little description of sort of what goes on. Yeah. Uh, where did that come from? Is that from your screenwriting? Or is that oh, one of the little the chapter openings. Um, it's from Jules Verne, I think. Um, I think it's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It's actually, I, I should have probably looked it up when I started doing it, but it was more a kind of thing of like I remember reading, I remember reading it when I was a kid, and I think it was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea that has that kind of uh, thing um, where they, at the start of the chapters, they, they do this kind of, it was done to give it a slightly, you know, a sense of kind of Victoriana, even though it's not actually straight up Victorian steampunk, but to give it that kind of like that um, old sense um, and at the start of each of the chapters it just has you know um, multiple descriptions sort of like you know an attack uh, I'm trying to think of the good ones now <laughs> um, like uh, Craig has a problem and like sort of six or seven of these kind of things that describes uh, the action that happens through the um, chapters and actually I remember that being one of the that became the bane of my life by about book three because the problem is you do that and you have to not do spoilers for what's happening essentially you're saying what happens in the chapters but you have to do it in such a way that you're not actually spoiling what is going to happen in the chapter so after a while it became a real pain I wish I hadn't done it but (laughs) you know oh good (laughs) so the the hard work paid off yes (laughs) yes you've written a lot of books are there any practical skills that you either use now to facilitate your writing or potentially wished you'd learned 20 books ago to facilitate the writing of the remaining 20? Sure, so um, the question is about practical skills Chris has learnt over writing a ridiculous number of books that we all wish we could have done um, and what, he, what lessons he would have liked to have known at the beginning. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I mean, I never... I never had any formal training or anything in writing it was all just it was all just learned from uh, reading but when I started when I decided I wanted to kind of start doing some screen work this came out of somebody um, it was like a producer wanted to do an adaptation of one of my books and he, he uh, asked me to write the script um, and so I was like I don't know how to write a script it's like when you look at film scripts they're, compl- they're incomprehensible if you don't know how to read them and so I, was, so I bought some books on screenwriting and the advantage of that I wish I'd have known the things I learned from screenwriting many years ago because what that does is it teaches you a kind of dramatic structure and it, what it does is give you a toolkit of how to kind of diagnose things that are going to go wrong in your book long before you, so you don't mess it up. Um, it teaches you know, about, about a dramatic structure, about stakes, about kind of like you know, how to do uh, character arts and so forth and just to kind of keep an eye on the theme of your book. All these things were elaborated in a way that I'd never had before. And previous to that, um, when I first wrote The Weavers of Saramir, I wrote the entire book. Uh, it, was, it was about something else, but in about the last kind of quarter of the book, they get to a land called Saramir. And my agent, at the time I read it, was just kind of like, yeah, it's not very good, but when they get to Saramir, this whole thing with the masks, this is awesome, you should totally do this. And I was like, oh, she's like, can you rewrite the book start, starting there? And I was like, no, I just wrote the whole book. Um, and so, uh, so I went away and sold for a bit, and then I came back and it was like, oh, I'll give it a try. And I started doing it. And I, she, she rang up. She rang up a couple of weeks later and was like, well, maybe I was a bit harsh about the book. You know, we can sort that out. And I was like, no, no, shut up. I'm already doing it. It's great. <laughs> and so I kind of rewrote the book. I tossed the whole book in the bin and then re- re- rewrote it, um, you know, from that end point. Uh, so I threw all of Weaver's Ceremony in the bin. I wrote half of the fade before I threw that in the bin as well because I completely screwed that up um, the first time round. There was another one I wrote where I got about a quarter of the way in and binned it. Um, 
So I was getting progressively less and less. But the reason why I did those kind of things um, was you can, you can write a whole book and you can just fundamentally get stuff wrong that completely ruin. It completely means the entire book is is wasted. It's like if you've done the, if you've really messed up the protagonist, for example. Um, I mean, one of the things that screenwriting tends to do is it has a kind of thing where it sort of says, it asks you the question over and over. Is like, why should anyone care? Uh, it's like if you're writing about somebody who's just fundamentally unlikable, if you haven't made, they haven't given something a hook for somebody to to be interested in them for. They don't have to be like lovable, but they do have to at least be a little bit cool, or you have to understand why they're doing what they're doing, or something like that. Um, you know, in, uh, in Prince of Thorn, Thorns, Mark Lawrence does a, does a character that obviously starts out incredibly unlikable, but then spends the rest of the book describing why he, you know why he is the way he is and so therefore comes up with and makes the protagonist interesting whereas if it had just been this one no horrible person it wouldn't it would have been no one you'd have been bored um and so yeah so those are the kind of things that learning about screenwriting kind of articulated for me and put in and you know just spelled out in such a way where I was like that would have saved me a lot of you know a lot of um scrapped books because there is even though you know even though there are 24 books there's a good I don't know, six or seven books worth of stuff that went in the bin in between, in between or before then. Uh, um, yeah, those. And life, actually life experience as well. There's always, always that kind of thing when I was writing. It, it's funny when I read some of the books when I was younger where the, you know, the way people react to stuff because I was kind of going like, I mean, now I'm 40, I look back at that stuff and I was going, you were a kid, weren't you? You didn't know anything. <laughs> like, um, but that's, I mean, obviously... Everybody has that. I'd like to know then what I know now, but then I wouldn't have done what I did then, so who knows. <laughs> Anyone else? No? Oh, oh, yeah. Um, when you've done a first draft, do you tend to rewrite and edit straight away, or do you leave it for any period of time? Okay, so the question is, um, after you've done a first draft, do you, you know, put it in a drawer and leave it before you go to edit, or just go straight into it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Stephen King has this famous bit of advice about like you know when you write a book, you should put it in a drawer for like a year or something, and then come back to it to see it. But realistically, no one could afford to do that. So, so it's like yeah, I start. Um, you write, uh, and also I kind of want to get it done because for me, it's weirdly anticlimactic finishing a book. You kind of you write the last bit and you go yeah. Now I've only got like you know a couple more months of editing to do on this. Um, and then by the time you've actually finished all the editing, you're so tired of it that it does, it's just sent away with this sort of like weary sense of relief. And you only really get a bit of a kick out of it when the book's actually published. And, it, and, it, um, and you, you see that when you get the finished copy, then you're like, ah, oh, there you go. Can't change anymore. Um, so, yeah, no, when I do a first draft, I pretty much immediately go back and edit it into a shape that I can give to my editor. Because um, the first draft will be full of uh, of mistakes and little notes I leave to myself, and there's a lot of there's a lot of swearing on myself as well in these kind of things. Where there's these little notes to myself going, "You bleep," uh, I you know just leave this out. You've forgotten about this one, or you're kind of going, "This character died in chapter three. Why is he here?" Um, that kind of thing. I mean, over this amount, over the length of time it takes to write a book, it's like you know you forget those little, those little details, like who's alive and who isn't, um, and. Uh, so yeah, so I go through the first one and basically get it into a readable form, um, get rid of all the really, really glaring mistakes and, and do as much grammar editing as I can. Like I say, nowadays, because I type it into the computer as I go from longhand, I've, I, a lot of the 
all the grammar stuff is kind of done mostly, so it's normally all right. And then I send it to my editor because I know then that it will t- it'll take at least you know a, a good few weeks, possibly months, because editors have busy schedules, to be able to get them uh, get back to you. And in that time, I'll have started doing something else, and so uh, I'll just immediately switch on to another project, start doing that, and then when the edits come back, I'll be like, well, okay, oh yeah, I've got this book. What happened in it again? And that that kind of gives you the the break you need to edit it with with fresh eyes because because like I say the editor can't there necessarily has to be a break for the editor to do their work and then get it back to you so that um, yeah functions well enough for that kind of thing but it, it, it's it's instant because it's like you go um, you read back over books you've done I, I must never read anything that I've done before but I was uh, my series of books called Broken Sky I'm, I was, I'm working on getting just converted into ebook to put out there just for posterity uh, and I went back there and I thought about like oh I could just do, do an edit on these and kind of brush them up for you know for um, modern day consumption because I wrote them when I was like 20 or something and, and some of the writing in them is atrocious um, but, <laughs> but, but I kind of go back and uh, you know look at them then and think um I don't know. Sometimes you just have to leave stuff alone. It's the opportunity to fiddle with stuff. Yeah, nobody wants it's, to be George Lucas. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that, was that, that, that was it. That was it. Yeah, I mean, he literally appeared and started circling <laughs> my head. <laughs> and I was like, no, leave it alone. Awesome. Well, we're out of time. So thank you so much for being with us today, Chris. And uh, I believe you're having a book signing after this? Uh, yes, at the Big Green Bookshop stall um, in the other room. Okay. Straight well, after. So definitely go and buy books keep our writers fed Um, (laughs) and thank you very much skin and bone here (laughs) thank you very much for for coming and I hope you enjoyed the panel thank you